0: Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know, it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. My name is Dale Shillington. And this morning we are going to begin a series of Christmas messages that are along the the theme of God is faithful to keep his promises. And it is my awesome privilege to begin this morning at the beginning of the first gospel of the New Testament and talk to you about the gospel in the genealogy of Jesus. Does that sound exciting? Yay! (laughs) It reminds me of this little boy who got a... uh, a rifle for Christmas, and he went out with his grandpa. He said, Grandpa, let's go out and shoot some squirrels. And so he went out, and he shot the squirrel, and the squirrel just jumped from one limb to the other. He shot again, jumped from one limb to the other, and he never could shoot that squirrel. And so grandpa said, hey, son, let me show you how to do this. And Gramps took that gun in his arm, and, and he's just like trembling and shaking, and he shoots, and poof, down comes the squirrel. And grandson turned to his grandpa and he said, you know, Gramps, if I'd have aimed all over the place, I could have shot it too. Well, since I get to begin this series, I have the privilege of just aiming all over the place, you know, and, the, and the Pastor Brad and Pastor Chris, they can take whatever text that I've left for them to deal with. But there's so many there. There's so many promises in God's Word. This is going to be exciting. We're going to, we're going to talk about all the promises of God. Well, I don't know about all of them, but how, how the promises of God have been kept. And He's faithful to keep His promises. And the coming of Jesus Christ demonstrates the faithfulness of God in keeping His promises. So I invite you, if you have your Bible, to turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. I don't come from a formal tradition, church tradition, where when the pastor read the Word of God, that he would say, this is the Word of God, and the people would respond by saying, thanks be to God. But I'd like to do that this morning. It seems appropriate, after reading the genealogy, which we don't normally uh, recognize as having great high edification value, uh, for us to acknowledge, this is the word of the Lord. So when I finish reading these 17 verses, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. And I'm going to do it with as deep as a, you know, a, a regal voice as I can muster up. And I want you to say with all the, the enthusiasm and confidence and faith you can muster up, thanks be unto God, okay? All right, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah, the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad, and Abiad, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud. And Eliud, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. So we are verbally confessing that we have read the very word of God. And we're affirming the total trustworthiness and authority of Scripture. And today I'm going to kind of take you through the genealogy with a 30,000 foot macro view, and then we're going to do a little micro uh, inspection as well of some real fine details within the genealogy, and I hope that by the time we're finished that your heart will be encouraged and your faith will be lifted up and you will see your own life in the context of the story that God is writing in our world. Before I get into the genealogy, I want to say as a matter of introduction that God has a plan for this world. And I want you to know that. This world is not spinning around by accident. God has a plan for this world. And his plan involves two comings or two advents of his son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Jesus Christ has come. He's arrived. His first coming has happened. He came first as a suffering servant. We're living right now within a parenthesis of time between His first coming and His second coming. He's returning again. And He's going to come a second time to finish up what He started as the reigning King. To bring His kingdom upon this earth once and for all. Upon Christ. First coming, what he accomplished was through his death, resurrection, and ascension, and the pouring out of the Spirit. Paul says to the book of Colossians that Satan and the principalities and powers have all been disarmed by the authority of the finished work of Jesus Christ. But we're awaiting now his second return when the Bible says that Satan and all of his principalities and powers will be completely destroyed. We're living in the time between the times, which we're carrying on. We're co-laborers with Jesus Christ in the ministry that he started in his first coming. And that tells us that though we are co-laborers with Jesus Christ, this time, this parenthesis of time will end and it could end very soon. The second return of Jesus Christ could be right around the corner. We don't know when he's going to come. The times, the Bible says, are set in God's hands. But I want you to know this. I want you to know that God has a plan for our world. And he has made promises over time that tell us that he has every intention to never abandon the planet that he created, the planet that Satan messed up, and that he has special plans for it. And He promises to restore what Satan has ruined. And it is God's deepest desire that this be a place where His glory is showcased for the entire universe. So we're going to talk about how God is faithful to keep His promises. And we're going to start this morning right here where Matthew started in the, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And we're going to discover the gospel Of Jesus Christ in the genealogy and how Jesus' family tree shows us that God is faithful to keep His promises. Now, if someone stopped you and said, Will you please tell me the Christmas story? Where would you start? If you were to tell them the Christmas story, where would you begin? Would you start where Matthew started at Jesus' family tree? Would you start with the 17 verses of begats before you ever get to Bethlehem? On Christmas morning, your children are going to be running around the house and they're going to be begging you, can we open the presents now, Daddy? When can we open the presents? And you, being the faithful spiritual leader of the home, are going to say, now, children, first, I would like to read you the Christmas story. Would your children be begging you, oh, daddy, daddy, would you please start with the genealogies? <laughs> Jeez, daddy, please don't leave out those 17 verses. Or would your children prefer you to start with verse 18, where it says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. <laughs> Why do we omit? Why have we, we we gloss over the genealogy of Jesus Christ? Well, we're... We're going to find something of value there this morning that hopefully will be an encouragement to you because I believe in having studied the genealogy that the purpose why Matthew gave us the genealogy and started there, started his gospel there, started the entire New Testament there is to portray Jesus as the Messiah, the completion of a story and the fulfillment of a promise. And there are seven ways that the family tree of Jesus shows us that God is faithful to keep his promise. The first one that I want to draw your attention to is that the family tree of Jesus shows Jesus as coming from Jewish descent, that he is a descendant of Abraham. So before we ever see in Matthew's gospel, Jesus being born in a manger in Bethlehem, we see him him in connection with the people of God who God has been making promises to all through history. So the birth of Jesus Christ is the continuation of a very long story that God has been writing. And that tells me something about what the gospel is, what Christianity is, that it is a history It begins with a history of God entering time, God entering space. It's a record of what God is doing in our world. It's a record of what God intends to do and how he wants to fulfill this deep dream that he has had in his original creation of planet Earth. It's a record of what God is unveiling as his plan for the human race. And through this long story, we know something about With absolute certainty that God has every intention to redeem our world. And God raised up, first of all, the Jewish people, a family. A family to be the carriers of this promise. And he promised... That the Messiah would come through that family. That the Messiah would be born of a Jewish lineage. And this genealogy that Matthew includes at the very beginning is no accident. It's absolutely intentional. And it is intended to tell us that Jesus is connected in history. He's not a fable, he's not a philosophy, he's not a thought, he's not a theology. He is a person who entered history. And Jesus is part of Israel's history. He has Jewish ancestry. And by the way, it also shows us how important the Old Testament should be to us as Christians. If you are grafted into Christ, then you are connected spiritually to Jewish roots. Paul said that you are the seed and the offspring of Abraham, spiritually. And the reason it's important for us to know that Jesus is Jewish is that the work that he was born to do. See, before we ever get to the manger in Bethlehem, Matthew is wanting us to know that the reason why Jesus is being born to this world is the same work that God had initiated through the history of Israel. It's the continuation of God's story, something God is doing. And that's why it says in Romans 9, of which Pastor Brad has been faithfully breaking the bread of life to us over the last couple of months, that immediately after saying in verse five that Jesus descended from Jewish ancestors, he's wanting to argue in verse six that God's word has not failed. God is completing His Word, fulfilling His promises through His Son, Jesus Christ. And we must understand that the human ancestry of Jesus it happens and is on record because that is part of our ancestry. We are connected to it as well. We are part of the story that God is writing in this world. Now, not only was Jesus born to do the same work, that God has been doing through the Hebrew people in the Old Testament. But this genealogy also shows us that Jesus is the very goal or the destination or the ob- object or the purpose for which God has been writing this story of long ago. I love the way that one scholar named N.T. Wright has described it. He said, In the Jewish world of Matthew's day, this genealogy was the equivalent of a roll of drums a fanfare of trumpets and a town crier calling for attention any first century jew would find this family tree both impressive and compelling like a great procession coming down a city street we watch the figures at the front we see the ones in the middle. But all the eyes are waiting for the one who comes in the position of greatest honor right at the end. A couple weeks ago, I uh, got on the plane and traveled to Ames, Iowa, to receive certification training to lead our Antioch school here at Cornerstone. And when I arrived in Iowa, first of all, flew into Des Moines, I found that the little lady at the car rental counter asked me this question. And over the course of the week, I found numerous people would ask me the same question. So what brings you to Ames, Iowa? Why are you coming to Ames, Iowa? And it was sort of with this astounded surprise. You live in Alaska, but you're coming to Ames, Iowa. And several people would even add this disclaimer No one ever just passes through Ames. In other words, you have to have a purpose for coming here. There there must be a point of why you're here. And uh, they knew that I was there for a purpose. And so I would explain to them that I was there to learn how to lead a church-based ministry training school at our church in Anchorage, Alaska. You see, a destination is not just the end of a journey. It is also the point of the journey. The journey is undertaken because of some purpose or some commitment which is fulfilled when the journey has reached its destination. Now, the Jewish people have been entrusted by God, as I said, to be the carriers of the messianic promise. And Matthew wants the reader of his gospel, when he opens up the New Testament and you start with those very first verses, we are to know that Jesus is the destination of God's journey on earth, God's story points to Jesus. It is the story of His glory. Jesus is the destination or the fulfillment of the journey. He's the whole point of the story. God is on a journey to redeem this world from its moral ruin and establish His kingdom here forever and forever. So Jesus is the sum and the summation of that plan. The ancient rabbis used to teach that the world itself was created for the Messiah. I love that. And the genealogy of Jesus conceals a story that led up to Jesus. It tells us that this is the goal of all of history. And this story will go on And will go on until the promise of Abraham is finally fulfilled in a great multitude that will come into the family of God. From every nation, from every tribe, from every people, from every language. And the goal of all of history is the same goal as it was in Israel's history. And it's the goal that God is now accomplishing through the church of the Messiah until we reach that end and it's fulfilled. God's deep dream is fulfilled that this earth will be the dwelling place of Messiah. Where he will dwell with his people. Until it says in Revelations eleven fifteen, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever Forever, forever, you guys over there saying forever, forever, forever and ever and ever. I hear handles Messiah, don't you? But this is the dream and we're part of it. We're during that parentheses of time between his first coming and his second coming. But there's a plan, there's a story that we're a part of. The second thing that the genealogy tells us is that Jesus is connected with Abraham. And God gave a special promise to Abraham. It's interesting that this is how Matthew starts his gospel because every gospel starts a different way. And it's written for a different purpose. It has a literary intention. It's a story, a plot, that they're trying to, a point they're trying to make. And Matthew starts his gospel with Abraham. Luke took his um, genealogy all the way back to Adam to show that Jesus was the Son of Man. And Matthew starts with Abraham because he's writing from Joseph's point of view in order to establish the legal record that Jesus existed within time and history. And he has a legal connection to the promise that God gave to Abraham. Abraham. And so he starts with Abraham. He actually begins by saying um, he's the son of David, and we're going to get to that in a moment. Then he says the son of Abraham, but then he traces the lineage beginning with Abraham. Now, let me say before we get to this promise that God gave Abraham and why it's significant that Matthew started with Abraham, that God had given two little hints that he was going to send his Messiah before he ever gave this promise to Abraham. The first one, actually, they're they're embedded all through Scripture. But but one of the main ones that we see is in Genesis 3.15. It's the word that God gave the serpent, where he declared to the devil that I will put enmity. This is in the Garden of Eden, after the temptation and the fall. He declared to the devil, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring... He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is called the first gospel or the proto evangelium. It's the gospel in germ form. Embedded in that word is a promise that a male descendant of human descent would be in some way divine. The Lord who would come and destroy the work of the devil. This shows the human side of the Messiah being born from a woman. The second promise, before we get to Abraham, occurred in the blessing that Noah gave his children. And in Genesis chapter 9, verse 27, we read of the blessing he gave to his firstborn son, whose name was Shem. He said, Blessed be the Lord, the God, Elohim, of Shem. May he, that is the God, Elohim, Dwell in the tents of Shem. I just love that promise that is embedded there. God announces through Noah that his advent will take place among the Shemites. The Greek form of Shemites is the, we, where we get the Semitic tribe. The, the word um, Semitic comes from Shem. It's the Greek form of Shem. And so Abraham is an ancestor of Shem. And so here we have a promise that occurred even before Abraham that the Messiah will dwell, will dwell among humankind. He will dwell within the tents of Shem. And one day as John begins his gospel, he said that the word of God, the eternal preexistent word, Word of God that dwells within the glory of the Father in heaven will descend and become the human born son of Mary and the word will become flesh and he will dwell or tabernacle amongst us in fulfillment of this promise given by Noah to his son Shem that Elohim will dwell within the tents of Shem. But Matthew didn't start in the garden, he didn't start... After the flood, there at the flood with the blessing of of Noah over his son Shem, he started with the descendants of Shem. He started with the promise that God gave Abraham. And this promise was very explicit up to now. The promise has been somewhat implicit, somewhat hidden in dramatic form, but now it's it's clear. It's wide open. He says to Abraham, matter of fact, he repeats it to Abraham six different times. He repeated it twice to Abraham's son, Isaac, and he repeated it twice to Abraham's grandson, Jacob. This is a significant promise we're going to look at. The first reference of the promise is in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, and then verse 7. The promise includes eight promises that God eight specific details in this promise that God gave to Abraham. First, he said that he will make him a great nation. Second it says that he will bless him. Third, he would make his name great. Fourth, Abraham and his seed or offspring would be a blessing to others. Fifth, God would bless those who bless him. Sixth, God would curse those who cursed him. Seven, through Abraham and his seed, and this is the significant messianic part of the promise, through Abraham and his seed or his offspring, God would be a channel of blessing to all of the nations or all of the peoples of the earth. And number eight came to Abraham in Shechem a few days later where God would give Abraham's seed the land that he had entered into after leaving Ur of the Chaldees. And so there's a promise of giving him a land. And so the first seven promises were given in his call, and the last one was given in Shechem. But notice the messianic aspect. That's what we're interested in looking at today. In the seventh promise there, someone from Abraham's seed, one of his offspring would come to bless the entire world. Not Abraham, not the patriarchs would do the blessing, but God would send someone through Abraham to bless the entire world. And the phrase is so significant. It's where, this is the passage where we base all of our missions work on. That all of the nations, all of the families, not just the, the Jewish people, all of them, all of the Gentile nations shall be blessed shall be participants of this blessing that comes through the Messiah. And that's the key to the promise. It means that all of the nations will participate in this blessing when Jesus comes. Some teachers even regard Abraham as the first Gentile convert to Judaism. And Paul makes the point in Romans 4 that God called Abraham before he was ever circumcised. So why does Matthew start building Jesus' family tree with Abraham? He does it to show that Jesus Christ came to fulfill the messianic expectation, the same promise that started with Abraham and has been passed on through his offspring where they are looking for the Messiah. But before we leave this point, I want you to hear how Jesus himself interpreted that promise and how he himself saw himself as the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. This is such an exciting verse of Scripture found in John's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 56. Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. Whose day? My day, Jesus says. He saw it and was glad. Isn't that a remarkable statement? Because Jesus is saying that Abraham himself interpreted the promise as a messianic promise. And Jesus was claiming to be the fulfillment of that promise. God is in the work of fulfilling his promises. And Jesus is the sum and the summation of so many of those promises. And that is why the New Testament starts with a genealogy. The coming of the Messiah to the world is calling you and I into that same salvation story that God started with Abraham. There is one story and there's one people, one world, And God is intending to redeem this world through his Son Jesus Christ. And that's why, again, in Romans 9, verse 8, Paul refers to us as also children of promise. If you belong to the Messiah, he says in Galatians 3 29, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Do you understand the greatness and the glory of Abraham's promise? This genealogy is rooted in that promise, so we need to understand that God made a promise one time, and He's fulfilling it through His Son, Jesus Christ. And that means that you and I, if we're Gentiles this morning, that really we are people of two histories. On the one hand, we have our own national and cultural background. I'm a Canadian, so I have that as my background ground that I'm proud of. I have a collection of Tim Horton hockey cups, and I played hockey with my son on the lake yesterday, and, uh, you know, I'm a Canadian, eh? And, uh, And that's part of my history, but I'm also, through Jesus Christ, a descendant from Abraham in this wonderful story that God has included me in on planet Earth. And friends, you are part of that story, too. You're not here by accident. As Robert Seuss, is it Robert Seuss? Dr. Seuss says, thank God I'm not a clam or a ham or a dusty old jar of gooseberry jam, but thank God I am what I am. And you are who you are. God created you and has a purpose and a plan for your life and you're part of a really big story. So don't just croak on your own little frog pond and think that the whole world centers around you. (laughs) There's a big story here. I need to move on. The third thing in the genealogy about this family tree is that it is structured in a pattern of seven. Notice verse 17. It says so clearly that there are three sets of 14 generations. You could say there's six sets sets of seven generations. Now, it's interesting that this list of Jesus' ancestors does not contain every name in the family tree. What? What do you mean by that, preacher? Well, not every name of everybody that was part of this tree is included in this tree. Now, how do you account of that if this is God's inspired word? Well, we need to understand the nature of God's word. God, this, this book is not a, a legal document for tax records and for people you know, going and paying their taxes. This is a literary doc, doc, document having a plot line in order to tell a story. And Matthew wrote this genealogy to portray Jesus as the Messiah, the completion of an Old Testament story and the fulfillment of a promise. And it was typical of a Jewish custom in those days and in many other cultures to abridge their genealogies in order to tell a story. It's called genealogical abridgment. It's as simple as that, and it occurs not only here in Matthew, it occurs in Ezra, it occurs in First Chronicles, and the reason is, is the Bible is written to tell a story. It's not for tax records, it's not a legal thing, even though Matthew was a tax collector and he probably got these names from those records. But this is what Matthew is doing here. He's arranging the genealogy to tell a story. Now, notice the two words I used a moment ago when I said that Jesus is... Matthew is showing that how Jesus is the completion of an Old Testament story and the fulfillment of an Old Testament promise. Those are two key words because whenever God wants to show the completion of something, the fulfillment of something, the perfection of something, the fullness of something, the wholeness of something, all through the Bible, He often, so often, gives us a hint of it by the use of the number seven. Did you know that? This just unlocked the word of God to me this year. The Lord, every year I ask the Lord for a theme for my church. And and the beginning of 2014, when I was pastoring in Eagle River, the Lord asked me to speak on the number seven. The number seven? And I did a whole series on the number seven, and it was so exciting. And you know what's exciting to me? Is that I wonder, I wonder if that was a prophetic word, perhaps, that God is intending sometime soon to complete to bring to fullness, to bring to fulfillment the story that he's writing. Remember, we're in that parentheses of time and Jesus is going to come again. But here in the genealogy, there's a pattern of seven. And that's to tell us that at the end of all of these names, there's the name Jesus to show that at the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those that are under the law so that we might be adopted as sons. Do you think that God has a plan for our world? You think He does? I believe He does. And the Bible says in Psalm 102, verse 13, You will arise and have mercy on Zion, that is Israel, for the time to favor her, yes, the set, time, the set time, the appointed time has come. God is working by a plan. Nothing in this world is happening by accident. And the number seven has always been one of the most powerful symbolic numbers. And to be born at the beginning of the seventh seven in the sequence is clearly the who intended to convey that Jesus is the climax of the whole list of names. This birth, Matthew is saying to us, is what Israel has been waiting for 2,000 years. The child who comes at the end of this line is God's anointed, long-awaited Messiah to fulfill all of the layers and the layers and the layers of the prophecies of old. And, by the way, before I move on to how, show how Matthew, then after the genealogy, gives us five of those layers and how Jesus fulfilled those, those, these five things, let me just point out that the, the, this pattern of seven not only shows that God is faithful to keep his promises in, in just because of the, he uses the number seven, but embedded in the number seven is also the idea of oath-keeping that the deal is sealed, that it's final. And so often God uses in conjunction with seven the the word oath or covenant. The word seven in Hebrew is Shiva, and the word oath or covenant is the word sabah. And they're very similar. And God uses them, for example, in Genesis. The word Bersheba means the well of seven. And it's where Abraham gave as payment to Abimelech seven ewes to pay for the land that God had promised that he would give give Abraham. Now, Abraham didn't immediately go in and possess that land. We know the story, right? They had, you know, it's it's sons that were born and they went down into Egypt and they were slaves in Egypt and then they, you know, escaped Egypt and uh, and then they possessed Cain and So It was many, many years after this. But Abraham rightfully purchased, legally rightfully purchased, the land that God had promised him. And Beersheba is the place where that oath was made that by the giving of seven U lands. And that tells me that if this genealogy embedded within it is this construction of the number seven, there's a promise here that is embedded in it that God, this world belongs to God He has purchased this world with His blood by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, that He is running the show and He fully intends to complete what He started until we get to Revelation 11.15 that then the seventh angel, which angel? the seventh angel blew its trumpet. It said, listen to this, everybody. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and forever. The fourth thing, I just love this next part, that the family tree, it's how the, the genealogy In the way Matthew intentionally writes the story, it it introduces five infancy stories that each one fulfills prophecy. Now, I'm not just saying I think it fulfills prophecy. Matthew intentionally wrote these and at the end of each story said, now I want you to know this is, and he quotes the Old Testament passage, this is how this event in Jesus' life fulfilled this prophecy. Isn't that cool? And that's what we're talking about at Christmas time. We're talking about how God is faithful to complete his promises. And so Matthew weaves these five scenes about the conception, the birth, the early childhood of Jesus, and perhaps for the benefit of those who read the genealogies real quick with their eyes kind of glazed over and they missed the point of the genealogy, ties up each of these five scenes to a quotation from the Hebrew scriptures, which he claims has been fulfilled by the event that he describes. So I'm going to quickly go through them. The first one is the angel reassured Joseph that Mary was pregnant. He says, that's okay. This is all of God. And Matthew says, this is to fulfill Isaiah 7.14, which was the Emmanuel sign. Matthew said that that fulfills Isaiah's prophecy. The second thing that Matthew records about the infancy of Jesus is that uh, he was born in Bethlehem in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And then he summarizes that at the end to say that this fulfills what Micah wrote in Micah 5, 2, in which was prophesied that a ruler of Israel would come from Bethlehem. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah. And so there's a prophecy that's fulfilled by Jesus being born in Bethlehem. And then Matthew again wants everybody to get it. And so he gives a third story about what happened to Jesus when he was a little baby and how his parents escaped Herod and they went down to Egypt and then he came back up out of Egypt. And Matthew says this fulfills the prophecy that Hosea gave in Hosea 11.1. Which is a reference to God having brought Israel, his son, out of Egypt, at the exodus. And then the fourth story that Matthew includes is, in Matthew 2:16 through 18, is the murder of the boys of Bethlehem by Herod." And Matthew says, "This fulfills Jeremiah 31:15, which is a lament for the Israelites who are going into exile. And then the fifth one is the settlement of Jesus' family at Nazareth. And in, in Matthew two nineteen to 23, um, he f- finishes that by saying that this fulfills what Isaiah predicted in Isaiah 11, 1, which the exact location where the Messiah would sprout from as a branch would be, branch in the Hebrew is Nazir, and it means that it was a prophecy that he would sprout from, he would grow up from a place called Nazareth. And I'm just not saying that. That's what Matthew says, Isaiah 11:1 pointed to. Isn't that interesting? I don't know that I would have seen every one of those prophecies as being finished and completed in Christ, but Matthew is wanting us to know that, that God is the, 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 you know, God's story, he's written in the Old Testament with the Hebrew Bible, is not an accident. There's intentionality to it, and it is so deep, it is so rich. That Jesus is the completion of that long Old Testament story. He's the fulfillment of a promise. And a destination is not just the end of the journey, it's also the point of the journey. And in the Old Testament journey, God had declared His purpose. He showed that I'm fully committed to the redemption of this world. And he's made it known in all kinds of ways to Israel so nobody would miss it, and especially the prophets. And this purpose and this commitment has been fulfilled in the arrival of a son. And by his five Old Testament quotations in quick, rapid succession, Matthew makes sure that we don't miss the point that God is faithful to keep his promises. And then the fifth thing that we notice here is that the family tree of Jesus teaches us a geography lesson about the spread of the gospel. Now, if you notice, the gospel begins saying that Jesus is the son of David, the son of David. And then in the early part of Matthew's gospel, he describes where the ministry of Jesus went. And Matthew intentionally shows that Jesus' ministry extended it from the far east to the far west. And he even quotes Isaiah 9, 1 through 2 in Matthew 4, 13 and 16. He describes Jesus as leaving Nazareth, Nazir, and he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet of Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Beyond, beyond the Jordan. That's the point. The Galilee, the Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness, meaning the non-Jewish people. All of those nations that was embedded in the promise of Abraham. They've seen, they've seen the great light. Those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them the light has dawned. And Matthew is trying to get the reader to see that this son of David, that his ministry, that his kingdom will extend in the reaches of all of the kingdom that David had. And the historical dimension that is in the the, the, um, genealogy has its geographical counterpart. There's history, that's about time. There's geography, that's about place. God came in time. God came in a place. And the first story that Matthew tells after the birth of Jesus is what story? It's about Magi coming from the Far East. Why does he tell that story? Ever, ever wondered why he starts with the Magi and Luke starts with the shepherds? There's an intentionality to show that, that Jesus' reign is, 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 is in accord with him being the son of David, that glorious kingdom. And Jesus is the living embodiment of the purpose for Israel to be a blessing to all of the nations. And Matthew wastes no time getting to the point that when the Messiah came, he had these visitors and he had these gifts and he had these worship from the east. And then the next thing he says that Jesus has gone all the way down there into Egypt to fulfill what the prophets said, that out of Egypt I have called my son. And Matthew wants this. Jewish audience to know that Jesus is clearly more than just Israel's Messiah. Jesus is the fulfillment of the saving purpose that he has for everybody, wherever you are and whoever you are, whether you be Jew or Gentile, and that every devout Jew knew that that promise that God gave to Abraham included, it was embedded a love for the entire world. And that's a fundamental part of what the Old Testament is all about. And so we get to John's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 16. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I I, I think I'm getting a little excited about this. I hope that you're excited about Christmas. (laughs) The sixth point is this matter that the genealogy includes four Gentile women. Now, it wasn't customary for ancient genealogical records to include women in the list, but there are four unlikely grandmothers in Jesus' family tree. There's Tamar, there's Rahab, there's Ruth, and there's Bathsheba. And that's so significant that these women, these women were a part, a vital part of God's saving plan. This unexpected appearance of four women would immediately jump right out to the Jewish reader and motivate them to ask the question, what is the meaning of this? This is an unusual kind of genealogy. And it would just glare out at them because according to Jewish law, a person's tribal affiliation, whether you were Levite or whatever, is passed on through one's father. But the actual Jewish identity, your Jewishness is passed on through your mother. And there are three things that are very significant about Matthew, including these four Gentile women in the lineage of Jesus. First of all, they aren't the great matriarchs of Judaism, that some prayers of girls are lifted up, and the four matriarchs, Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, and Rachel, every Jewish girl asks that they'll be like these wonderful matriarchs. But these matriarchs are not in this genealogy. The women that Matthew include are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. And the second thing that's significant about it, so surprising about it is that these women are not women who have had supernatural births. Such Matthew, if he was wanting to connect women in Judaism who had supernatural births with Mary who's going to have a supernatural birth. He could have you know, talked about Sarah and her supernatural birth and Rebecca and Rachel, but these women are not mentioned. Instead, there's these ordinary Gentile women and then the third surprise is the primary common link that these four women share together is that they all have Gentile ancestry. They are all part of four interracial marriages. Tamar was from Canaan, Canaan. Rahab was from Jericho, Ruth was from Moab, and, Reb- and Bathsheba was the ex-wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, what is Matthew trying to teach us here by including these four unlikely, surprising Gentile women. Jesus is not only a part of Israel's history, but he's part of God's plan for the mission to the Gentiles. There's an explicit inclusion of the Gentiles among the female ancestors of Jesus. Jewish people regarded genealogies as important to establish the purity of their lineage. Yet it is a mixed nature, the mixed nature of Jesus' lineage that Matthew purposely tries to highlight. So that when Matthew includes these four women, he's reminding his readers that three ancestors of King David and the mother of King Solomon all were Gentiles. And Matthew is making it vividly clear that Gentiles were never, ever an afterthought in God's plan, but had been a vital part in his work in history right from the very beginning. That God loves the whole world. And if He loves the whole world, He loves you this morning. God is faithful to His promise. And the final thought, to wrap it up, that I want you to notice is that the family tree of Jesus is made up of very ordinary, deeply flawed people. This may be the most startling feature of all, but here Matthew is claiming that Jesus is the divine Son of God, but His genealogy comes directly through unrighteous lines. His family tree is made up of idol worshippers, harlots, adulterers, murderers, and cheats. You know, God doesn't gild his saints. He doesn't whitewash his people. He doesn't cover up the truth. But I'm so glad that Matthew put these people in his genealogy right there at the start of his gospel, right about the story about God's love coming to the world through His Son, Jesus Christ. Right there. Because it tells us that God's plan is not contingent upon my righteousness. Not upon my goodness. Not upon my works. It's not dependent upon perfect people. God's plan is going to get done in God's time by God. Amen? And we just need to, by faith, join ourselves part of that story that He's invited us into. And God loves us as we are and not the way we ought to be. So come to Jesus as you are. That's one of the messages. That's the gospel that's embedded in the genealogy. That when God came to our world, he entered into our pain. He entered into our misery. He saw our mistakes in advance. He saw our misfortune. He saw our limitations, our ability to keep the law. That's why Paul says that in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son born under the law. He's the only one that perfectly kept the law. But He's invited all of us other lawbreakers and sinners into His plan that He did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. And it says in Hebrews 2.11 that He is not ashamed to call us His brothers and sisters. (laughs) Think about a couple of these people now in closing. Think about Ruth, the Moabite. She's a pagan idol worshiper. How in the world would someone like that ever get into the lineage of Jesus? Perhaps Ruth, living there over in the land of Moab, one day looked across the Jordan, across the Dead Sea, and she saw the hillsides of Judah in the distance, and she said, I've heard a rumor. I've heard a rumor that God lives over there. You know, but that's never going to be a part of my life or my history. I'm a Moabite. There's no prospects for me. What will I, a Moabite, ever amount to? But God noticed Ruth. God didn't forget Ruth. He reached across the divide and He brought her over into the lineage of Jesus. Her grandson was Jesse. Her great-grandson was David. Why? Simply because God chose her. Why did God choose her? Because God is a gracious God. A loving God who desires to dwell with His people. This is His fundamentally deep dream that He has for the world. That Satan has ruined. But God fully intends to fulfill that deep dream. Think about In verse 4, it mentions a father and a son, Ram, or in some translations it says a Ram. Ram and Aminadab. Who did you say? Ram and Aminadab. Can you let those names roll off your tongue? Ram and Aminadab. Who are they? What do we know about those guys? We don't know anything, basically nothing, except that their names are in this genealogy. But we know that the way that the time in which they appeared in this genealogy, that these men probably lived in Egyptian slavery. Can you imagine a more unpromising, bleak outlook than that? To live and to die as an Egyptian slave? Do you think that night when the angels were singing joy to the world, that in Bethlehem that perhaps God gave Aram, And Aminadab, the privilege of looking over the portals of heaven and listening in to that beautiful song. You know, friends, at some time in eternity, we will see how our lives make sense, that there was a purpose after all for that thing and the other thing. And that huge failure in our life, that God can redeem it and include us as part of his story. I just sense the Holy Spirit here right now, and He's wanting to embed that with deep faith in your heart that your failures are not final with the Lord. He may not condone you in that ditch, but neither does He condemn you to the ditch. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to save us. And I can imagine God taking Ram by the hand and taking him up to heaven's computer of genealogical records and he says to Ram, do you know who that is down there in that Bethlehem manger? Yes, Ram would say, we've heard the rumor. We've heard that you're sending your son down to earth to redeem that world. But Ram, I want you to look a little closer there. And I can see Ram's eyes all of a sudden getting big and beginning to bulge. He says, why, Lord, that's my name. That's my name on that list. Aminadab, come here, son. Look at that list. Do you see that light over the manger? Do you see that son of God being born on planet Earth? Do you hear what the angels are saying? Unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. Well, that's the Messiah and Aminadab. That's our grandbaby. That's our grandbaby. God has come in flesh, in time, in space, in history. And and we're in that line. We're part of that story. Oh, Aminadab, if we'd only known that down there in Egypt. If we'd only understood that, we could have borne the burden and the weight of that slavery and that horrible ordeal. We could have borne it with so much more joy and acceptance. Aminadab. Do you remember those hard days when the soldiers would lash us with their whips? Do you remember asking me, Dad, why was I ever born? What purpose is there to life anyway? Let's just give up. I think, Aminadab, if we could have only realized at that point that we were part of the royal lineage of the Messiah, I think I could have looked that Egyptian slave master in the face and said under my breath, "Old oh boy, you go ahead and lash, put your lash on me, but I want you to know something. There's a king that's coming out of my line, out of my lineage. He's not just an ordinary king. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. And the Messiah is going to be born and he's going to be my grandbaby. You may not know who I am. You may not be paying me much respect, You may not think that I'm amounting much to, but I want you to know that I'm in the lineage of the Son of God. (laughs) But Aminadab didn't know it probably. Jesus said Abraham knew it and he looked forward. But I'm not sure about Ram and Aminadab and some of these other people. But God who sees the end from the beginning knew that Aminadab and Ram were not insignificant nobodies. They were links in God's chains. They were blocks in God's building. They were people right in the middle of fulfilling God's wonderful promise. And I'm wondering here this morning as we close, if there's some people sitting here who you may feel like you're an insignificant nobody. There may be some some Rams here this morning. (laughs) There may be some Aminadabs here this morning. You may feel like, why was I ever born? What good prospects are there for my life? What will I ever amount to? I'd like to encourage you to begin today to take on eyes of faith. It may not look like it. It may not seem like it. But God has a purpose for you. And someday he's going to show you that purpose. You're going to see why you were born. And the genealogy of Jesus Christ was written to strengthen our faith. It shows that Jesus is completing a story and that he's fulfilling a promise and that God always keeps his word. God's word will never fail, that you can rest all of your life upon it. And I want to ask you to do something this morning before we go. I want to ask you to begin to look at your life now through the lens of Jesus Christ who is the sum and the summation of all of history and He's gathering together a people to whom God promised that He would gather and fulfill that deep dream that He has for this world. Will you decide today to live your life for Jesus Christ and be a part of that deep dream, that wonderful plan that God has? There may be someone here who says, I wish I knew what my purpose is in life. Well, let me tell you, I know what your purpose is. Your purpose is exactly the same as Abraham's purpose. It is the point to Jesus Christ. Will you go to your purpose? Jesus died for you and he has called you and he's put you in a little place, a little place of responsibility so you can carry on his mission in this broken world. It's not your mission. It's not about you or me. It's about him. It's his mission. And we're in that parentheses of time where the call of Israel is now upon us, the church, to be the carriers of this gospel message and co-labor with the Messiah who came once but is coming again, maybe very soon. God has a plan, a deep dream for this world. He will be faithful to complete that plan And he's created you and me to be part of it. Will you allow God to use you to take this gospel to the world? Lord Jesus, I ask that today you will begin to give our eyes a new new vision. Lift up our sight to see the story that you are written and that you've included and invited us to be a part of it. Only by your grace, not by our effort to become worthy to be part of the story, but you've invited us by your grace to participate in it. Help us to see our life as part of a much bigger picture. And I pray, Father, that great grace would be upon each one of our homes and families during this Christmas season, that we'll begin to see And know the presence of the Christ who came to our world through the ministry of the Holy Spirit that you are with us now to enable us to be Jesus in the workplace, amongst our neighbors, and even to our family. May we live that story and be that gospel that we're writing a chapter each day. People see what we do people read what we write and may our lives reflect the glory of jesus christ because this is all about the story of your glory jesus amen Amen. god bless you